Hey, Ramona. Hey, Jackie. Wow, it's so good to see you. You look so tanned and not at all relaxed, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been quite a vagabond over the last last two months with my traveling caravan of children and a golden retriever and a husband across (laughs) Canada. Awesome. That must have been a great journey. Minus, you know, minus the family... Um, struggles <laughs> in the car. Period. <laughs> <laughs> Minus the family, period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, know, you know, it's been really great. I'm, you know, it's been a long time since we've recorded and I've missed doing this and I, and I miss reaching out to our listeners, but it's been a nice break to just recharge and be with the people you love and see faces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we went away twice this summer to a cottage, which all I heard was, we're going deeper into the woods together (laughs) (laughs) with the same people I've been with for 17 months. Um, The first week we had away in a year, uh, we were so excited and um, it turned into a Lampoon family vacation (laughs) um, because we lost the frigging roof bag off the car and lost everything on the highway. No one was hurt. My husband got stung, and that's when we found out he needed an EpiPen. His, like, face blew up sideways. We called him <laughs> face and half. We thought the dog broke his leg. I re-sprained my ankle. We had four tornado warnings. The cottage was actually a trailer. I can't even tell you <laughs> how many things went wrong. But it was funny because we are laughing about it now. And then we did recuperate with a really great week away at a beautiful cottage that was not a trailer, and there were no tornadoes. So That's it was, good. it was good, but you know, I think it's really just like, we were able to laugh about it. Cause God, at least we got away from the house. At least we got off our street. At least we got out and got into nature and got to see family and friends. And you just don't realize what a toll that took on all of us. eh? Yeah. And you know, it's a great segue into talking about a very controversial subject and that is sleep. <laughs> yes, and and the controversy is where did it go? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, people ha- lose their minds because during menopause they lose their sleep. Exactly. And we, we wanted to get down to business on this one and figure <laughs> out why are we losing all this sleep and how can we get our sleep back? Because we love sleep. And who's taking it? And why? (laughs) Who's taking it? But we found someone who will help us get it back. And that's Carrie Roberts. And she is a pharmacist and she's a certified menopause practitioner at Brant's Art IDA Pharmacy. Um, And she's been practicing pharmacy in Hamilton and Burlington area for like 20 years. And she knows a lot about sleep. Yeah, and she's amazing. And I just shout out to my hometown. Brand Arts is right up the street in Burlington from my house where my parents still live and where I grew up. Um, They've always been an incredible pharmacy, like very, very helpful. But Carrie was, wow, like what a great conversation. We didn't think, I well, I don't know about you, I really didn't think we were going to get the answers we got tonight. I thought there'd be some speculation, but I think Carrie blew my mind a few times with some really interesting facts Things that, honest to God, every woman should know. Um, spoiler alert, get off the Ativan if you want to keep your memory. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't a big fan about her comments about wine and sleep, but I might edit that out. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Um, I think people are going to love this episode. So have a listen to Carrie Roberts. Going through menopause and can't sleep? Well, you are not alone. Menopause is a time of major hormonal, physical, and psychological changes for women, and all that change can wreak havoc on our sleep. Isn't that right, Carrie? Absolutely. You know, we were just involved in a study where we had about 100 women rank their symptoms and how bothersome they were, and the ranking scale was from zero to six. And out of those 100 women, the sleep disturbance ranking was given a five. So most wow. of those women felt really? that sleep disturbance is very bothersome. Yeah. Are you allowed to say what number one was? Oh, sorry. It wasn't ranked like it was oh, number five. It was out of on six. a scale of how bothersome. Okay. Zero being not bothered at all and six being bothered. Yeah. Uh, the average was five, meaning that wow. the average was that it was very bothersome for them. Very significant. Yeah. yeah. Not so surprised by that. Not at all. So can we just start by talking about like how does menopause affect sleep? Certainly. So, you know, there's, there's the hormonal physical reasons why. So in perimenopause, when our progesterone levels start to really go low, Progesterone helps to calm us and it can help us with sleep. And so if our levels are naturally low, then it can be difficult to sleep. So that's just a very basic physiological one. Yeah. Um, but then if we get into, you know, what's going on in menopause with stress and hot flashes and trying to take care of young children, aging parents, there's just so many factors that affect our sleep. Um, Stress probably being the biggest one. Not being able to sleep is really a psychological issue. You mm -hmm. know, women are worried. They get into bed and they are already worried about, am I going to get enough sleep? How many hours till I have to wake up? Am I going to get a deep enough sleep that I'm rested to do what I need to get done tomorrow? Yeah, yeah actually, that's interesting because... I, we talk a lot about how having menopause, like being in menopause or perimenopause, a lot of women experience increased anxiety and obviously sleep issues. And I don't know why I never like thought of that, like increased anxiety. Obviously, your mind is working overtime. And I imagine that's such a big factor for some women when they lay down and their minds are still going, 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 going. Sure. Yeah. And your minds are going, going, because you really have a lot going on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that cortisol, right? We've all heard about that. Yes. Hormone, um, which is good for us when we need to get up and go and get something done. But at bedtime, we need our cortisol levels to lower and often they're just too high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't really need my cortisol at 3 a.m. because I'm not going anywhere. And I, 3 a.m. seems to be, 3 to 4 seems to be the witching hour, doesn't it? Absolutely. So when we ask women, you know, is it difficulty getting to sleep or difficulty staying asleep? I get mixed results, mm -hmm. but the ones who can't stay asleep, they're always waking up around three. Yeah. And then they get back to sleep. Is there a reason for that sort of hour? Does that like, is it three o'clock no matter when you go to bed or is it a sliding scale or is three o'clock like just a curse that mother nature has put on us? What's with three? You know what? It does have to do with mother nature and circadian rhythms. Mm. So we're actually supposed to have a bit of a rise in our cortisol at 3 p.m. 
But often mm-hmm. it gets flipped around and our cortisol then rises at 3 a.m. And we don't <laughs> want that. We don't want it to rise till 6, 7 when it's time to get up. Yeah. So wow. often cortisol is to blame for that, for sure. So why, why does it get flipped? I mean, like during the day, we've got daylight, like melatonin isn't kicking in. Why would our cortisol flip to evening at 3 a.m.? Like, is that just a huge mistake? I think it is. I think what happens is that during the day, we have excess levels of cortisol in the morning because of all the stresses that we're going through. Then we get a little bit burnt out. And so the cortisol drops Then it starts to rise again at night for some people, like right at bedtime, and the cortisol is high when it's supposed to be low. And so it continues to be flipped and then rises again at 3 a.m. I don't know if we really understand why that is, or maybe someone out there does, and I I just am not aware. Mm -hmm. Um, But we know that there's some kind of flipping happening to that circadian rhythm. Okay. Interesting. Because I wonder... Oops, sorry. <laughs> We're so excited, Jack. <laughs> yeah, it's our cortisol. Um, I. It's funny because like all the women I've spoken to, and Ramon, I think you too, like no one has a problem going to sleep. I mean, we're so tired after the end of the day. And as soon as I crack open a book, I'm two pages in and I'm gone. But yes, the biggest complaint is I can get to sleep, but I can't stay asleep. So we're definitely, Ramona, we're not alone. No, you are certainly not alone. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious too, when we talk about all of those things and then you factor in the pandemic and the stress related to the pandemic and also even for some of us who like the inactivity during the pandemic, like being like tethered to a computer all day, like more people are like in the same environment, they're on technology more, all of those things I'm just thinking must just wreak havoc on our bodies when we try and go to sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And would that be, um, is this what contributes to brain fog and memory loss? Because I mean, if, if we're not really getting sleep on a consistent basis, which I would guess that is consistent, um, it's going to affect how we function the next day or not function. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, You know, when we get a better night's sleep, our brain is able to make decisions better. We're faster. We can concentrate better. And so when we have less sleep, um, we're easily distracted. We aren't able to accomplish our tasks as fast as we did before. Um, so sleep really does have an impact on our daily activities, whether it's memory or even the ability to learn something new. So um, the other thing that could be why we are waking up in the night is there's different stages to sleep. So we've heard of REM sleep and deep sleep and light sleep. So we should be spending quite a bit of time in deep sleep. But as we get older, and this is for everyone, men and women, um, we spend less time in that deep sleep, less time in REM sleep, and more time in light sleep. And we can easily waken during light sleep. So then we get woken and we're disturbed and we're not able to get back to sleep. Mm, Interesting. And so even if we aren't like waking up a ton during the night, would you consider that the quality of sleep is, 
is affected as well. Like, like when you're talking about the REM sleep and all those different, like the sleep cycles, but like for the most part, I don't wake up a ton during the night, but I usually I wake up cause I have to go pee. <laughs> And, and depending on the night, sometimes I have trouble falling back asleep, but I'm just curious for someone who, who doesn't have like a ton of sleep issues, is there, but I'm still feeling very tired the next day. So I'm just curious to know, like if I might be sleeping through the night, but my quality of sleep might not be as good as it used to be. Yeah, you're right on. So it's very normal as well to get up to pee in the night. Mm-hmm. once, it starts to become not normal if we're peeing more than once. So if we're oh. having to get up two and three and four or five or six times, then that's not a normal amount to have to get up to pee. Um, but if we are spending the entire time laying down and we think we're asleep, but we aren't in deep sleep enough, then we don't feel rested because Mm -hmm. we didn't get that time to repair and for the body to sort of rejuvenate and feel rested. So we've been, what we think is asleep all night, but we wake up and we're still tired. We didn't get enough. Mm -hmm. I definitely know that feeling where, and the worst feeling is like when you do wake up around that three or four o'clock time. And then you finally, after you're done ruminating about how you've ruined your children's lives and your own career, then you fall (laughs) back to sleep And then when the alarm goes off, it's terrible. Like you're in the best sleep ever in that moment. Yeah. And then it just feels awful that they've interrupted you then. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we've, you know, we're curious because obviously sleep is like one of the top complaints that we hear about and we go on about, Um, you know, when you talk about like peeing a lot in the middle of the night, there's so many things that could contribute to that. Did you drink a ton of water before bed? Did you drink a ton of wine? Uh, do you have a urinary tract infection? Like, obviously, like, obviously, those things will make you pee a lot. But aside from those things, is there any other indication that peeing a lot during the night might be another problem? Yeah, so a lot of men and women are not fully emptying their bladder. So they get up in the night to pee, they go, they think they're done, they go back to bed. But there's actually some residual urine left in the bladder. And so then what happens is that urine becomes very concentrated and it's very irritating to the bladder. So half an hour later, the bladder says, I want you out of there. And it wakes you up to go and empty the bladder again. So often when I'm talking to patients who are having issues like that, we, we don't want them to restrict water. We do want to make sure you're drinking enough water so your urine is dilute enough. But when you go to the bathroom and you're done, you're not done. So stay there, press on your abdomen, um, turn the water on, run your finger under the water and make yourself stay till you can empty the bladder a little more f- so that you can stay asleep longer afterwards. Oh, I've never heard this method before. <laughs> I'm going to have to try it. I mean, for the most part, I only get up like once a night, but there's sometimes I have like a night where like, for some reason, I have the urge to pee like several times during the night. And yeah. it's like, I just peed like 
like an hour ago, why am I up again? And like, and then I'm laying in bed and I'm constantly thinking about it. And it makes me insane. And I will like, it doesn't happen often, but often enough that I'm actually mentioning it in the podcast, <laughs> which is kind of like, oh, our listeners know so much about us. <laughs> yes. Thankfully we don't share images of these things. <laughs> so getting, you know, like getting, um, getting ourselves properly prepared for bed. Like, is there really, are there really good, is there good evidence? See, like I didn't have a good night's sleep last night, so I'm mumbling. Is there good evidence that we need better sleep hygiene, like a better routine at night? Is there something we can do at night that would help? Certainly. So, you know, we know we're not supposed to be on our screens before going to bed. We really shouldn't be doing anything in our bed, but having sex and sleeping. So we shouldn't be watching TV, even reading a book. I know I do that myself. Um, But what they say is that bed should really just be for sleeping and that you should only get into it when you're ready to go to sleep because we shouldn't be sitting in our bed doing anything else because then our brain starts to learn that bed is for something else. It's for eating or reading or watching TV. And so we need to train the brain to realize that the bed is really only for me to go to sleep. And then that's what helps people have a better ability to fall asleep anyhow. Right. Okay. Um, We know that sleep hygiene as well is, it's important, but it's not always effective totally on its own. So when someone's having a really hard time, we can try all those good sleep hygiene things, but sometimes we're going to need to add something to help get to sleep. Okay. This is where it gets really into the good stuff. Um, So personally, I've tried everything under the sun. I've tried um, dream water, melatonin, magnesium, magnesium, melatonin together, THC, wine, uh, reading, sleep apps, meditation app. I've literally tried it all. I'm sure there's more stuff I can't, I just can't think of it. Um, But I found out recently that even though melatonin is helpful, it's not helpful to someone like me because melatonin kind of gets you to sleep, but that's not my problem. My problem is staying asleep. I find with melatonin that somewhere during the night, I wake up and it seems to have worn off and I actually feel a little bit jittery or agitated by it. Um, Magnesium is a bit of a slower burn for me. Like I can take magnesium and it won't make me super sleepy, but it does seem to help me a little more with my sleep during the night. But these are just like, this is just me trying different things, desperate for some Z's. What do you have to say about this? Right. So, you know, you've, You've tried all the things that I would certainly go to first as well. Um, Magnesium's my number one thing that I recommend. Um, Mm -hmm. I always think it's important that we use the right kind of magnesium when we're taking magnesium, and that's magnesium glycinate or bisglycinate. Mm -hmm. Um, So the glycine part of it is something that helps us to relax, um, and it's also something that helps our body absorb magnesium. Now, most people are low in magnesium, but not everybody is. So you may have supplemented enough magnesium that your body has enough. um, And so maybe giving more isn't solving your problem. 
So I usually have a rule of thumb with magnesium is that I want people to take it until what we call bowel tolerance, meaning I want you to take enough until it causes a loose bowel movement. And then it means it's time to start lowering the dose. So the other issue I find is that women don't take enough magnesium. So that's why I say let's keep increasing the dose, increasing the dose until we know we've maxed out on the magnesium. So as soon as the stool becomes soft, that means we've maybe got a little bit too much magnesium, it's relaxing all the muscles, including the bowel muscles. And so if that has not improved our sleep, then more magnesium isn't going to make it better. We've already filled your body with magnesium. Does that make sense? It does. It does because um, someone had recently suggested to me that just because you're taking magnesium, it doesn't mean you're taking the right dose and that can cause problems. So that's exactly kind of what you're saying. Right. So, and the other reason why I like magnesium is we mentioned earlier cortisol. So the cortisol is made from the adrenal gland and we often want to help the adrenal gland produce those hormones appropriately. And so magnesium nourishes the adrenal gland. So magnesium doesn't usually make us sleepy. It actually helps to nourish that adrenal gland and then help us to have deeper sleep waves. So a longer time in that deep sleep. Um, but it doesn't make you feel like, oh, I'm ready to go to sleep because magnesium is yeah. making me drowsy. Um, When's the best time to take it? Like, so it's is interesting. It right before still, you go to bed, or I still usually do recommend bedtime, but mm -hmm. in theory, it could be taken in the morning. So, for some people, I will have them spread it throughout the day because if they find taking all of it at night does cause their stool to be a little bit too loose, but it is helping their sleep, then we'll spread it out. So, they might take one dose in the morning and then lunch and then bedtime. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other reason why I really like magnesium is if muscle twitching is why you're waking up. So I don't know if that's oh. happening for anyone. Not um, yet. <laughs> but so yeah, I've heard like the restless leg syndrome and that sort of thing. Right. So magnesium can be really good for that too. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned melatonin. Yeah. So Melatonin is something everybody makes when it gets dark. Um, and most of us are pretty good at making melatonin. But as we get older, we're not as good at doing that. And when I say older, that means maybe starting 55, 60-ish. Okay. So it's not till we're much older that we start to lose melatonin. So sometimes replacing melatonin when we're 40, 50, it may not really be giving us any benefit to sleep because we're probably making enough melatonin. So I think it's worth a try. And I always start with a really low dose, like one milligram, three milligram, mm. do that for a week or so. And if no improvement, you could increase it, but I don't want you going over 10. So if we started with the three milligram, that's kind of a nice one to work with. You do one pill, increase it to two. If you get to three and it's not working, then melatonin isn't what you need. Okay. The and same thing with that, sorry. Um, yeah. Same thing okay. with that, you would take it at bedtime? So melatonin needs to be at bedtime. We don't take okay. melatonin in the day. So we make melatonin at night to help us sleep, but we do need melatonin throughout the night. 
So interesting, there are different formulations. Some are what they call slow release, so it doesn't release it till later in the night. Mm. And so that might be more beneficial for some people. The other thing I've had some people use is a fast releasing melatonin, and they do that at three o'clock in the morning. So they don't take it at bedtime because they can get to sleep. And then they wake up at three, take a really low dose because then it shouldn't have too much of an impact in the morning. Oh, that might be good for you, Jack, either the slow release or the the neck when you wake up at three. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. I've actually got the one milligram beside my bed, the sublingual, like just the tablet. And if I'm having a really bad night, then I'll take one. But I still find myself slightly groggy in the morning, especially if it happens around three or four, because I get up at seven. Mm. Yeah. You also mentioned jitteriness. Yeah. Which makes me think cortisol. So cortisol oh, sure. is our hyperhormone. So would you be better with something that helps you to lower cortisol? Yes. There are different <laughs> supplements that do that. Um, mm. So when someone's really tired and burnt out during the day, they, they are anxious, they, they feel this. We sometimes call it tired and wired. Um, yes. I like a product called Relora. So Relora helps your body to lower cortisol. But interesting, it also gives you energy. So you do not take Relora at bedtime. You take Relora during the day, so breakfast and maybe lunchtime if you need it. And so the idea is that it's going to help lower your cortisol later in the day, but you don't take it at night because it would really kind of perk you up. So that's one option. Another one I like to lower cortisol is, um, it's coming to me, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, it's called phosphatidylserine. So <laughs> that's, well, no wonder it took you a minute to like figure that one out. Wow. Yeah. So that's an ingredient. So when I say these names, I'm not saying a particular brand. You could go mm-hmm. into a health food store or a pharmacy and you might find different companies who make phosphatidylserine. Or sometimes we even find these things in a blend. So they might have mm. melatonin in it and phosphatidylserine. Um, and that's okay. I think sometimes having a blend of things helps us use a smaller dose of all of these different things to help us um, in all the different potential problem areas. Nice. Um, some women experience um, like snoring and sleep apnea and that sort of thing when they are in menopause. Um, have you noticed like with your patients, like an increase of that as well? Yes. So we do know that when our hormones change, we see more sleep, sleep apnea in women. Um, and we, We know that sleep apnea can come along with weight gain. So sometimes we see that there's a weight gain at menopause, Mm -hmm. Um, but we think that it's not related to menopause because we do see that um, women who don't gain weight can also still get sleep apnea after their hormone levels drop. Um, So that needs to be treated in a whole different way. Yeah. um, You would see a medical practitioner for that. Um, But sleep apnea from our partner might be an issue too, right? Mm -hmm. Hearing that snoring can be really disruptive for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's so funny you say that because, you know, that irritability because you just finally get to sleep and then your partner starts snoring. And I'm a light sleeper, so that doesn't bode well for me. So um, just to go back to the Relora and the other word I can never 
I don't think I'll ever be able Phosphatidyl to. Phosphatidyl serine. Yeah. Phosphatidyl <laughs> serine. Um, what is, what are those? What are, are they yeah, natural so ingredients? Laura, and for Laura is a natural ingredient that comes from, and now I'm going to think of the plant, rhododendron and philodendron, I think. I'm not a botanist, but so for Laura is <laughs> an herbal ingredient. Um, phospholipid ser- phosphatidyl serine is what we call a phospholipid and it's a, a fat that comes from a cell membrane. Um, so I believe it is synthetically made. It was originally from an animal product. So they would get it from animal product and now it doesn't. It just comes from it's invented in the lab. Right. Safer um, vegan and vegetarian. Correct. Yeah. And so, and that's over the counter as well, that yes. one. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I feel like that one is a really interesting choice because of the cortisol piece. Like maybe that's something that could help a lot of people like sure. who are struggling. Hmm. I mean, there are many different supplements to help with cortisol, ashwagandha, rhodiola. Those are all more. I do take ashwagandha. Okay. Yeah. So that's adaptogen and it's trying to help your adrenal gland balance lower cortisol when it's too high, yet raise cortisol when we need it. Because we we often think of cortisol as a bad thing. We need it. We just Mm -hmm. need it in the right amounts. Right. Ramona, how's that working for you? (laughs) <laughs> is it well, no you know what actually I have to get back on the routine like my yeah. issue is I buy all these supplements and intent on taking them regularly and then I get out of habit like right now I'm out of a routine like with my exercise and all that stuff because you know life and we're going through a reno. But like, so it's actually a good thing to talk about with some of these natural supplements is that sometimes their um, effectiveness hinges on the length of time that you take them. Is that correct? Yes. Although I like the idea of being... um, not on a schedule with sleep aids in general... Mm-hmm. because, you know, we worry about prescription sleep aids as being addictive. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that even the natural supplements can be addictive too. Anything mm-hmm. that we do every single night to help us get to sleep, whether it's our favorite blankie as a little kid, you take that blankie away and they, they can't sleep. For me, it's my pillow. I love my pillow. If you take my pillow away, I just, I don't have a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, you know, if we're trying to lower cortisol and we use a supplement to help us lower cortisol, we're also in a way, we do want to help your body learn to do that on its own. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to have you take a supplement forever to lower cortisol. Mm-hmm. We're trying to nourish the adrenals so that they can do them do that on its own. But if we take something like melatonin or um, some people use different types of GABA or things that help us raise GABA. So GABA is something that relaxes us and helps us fall asleep. Um, We need to almost use them interchangeably. I don't mean every day, but Mm. maybe we use melatonin for a couple months and then maybe we switch to a GABA. And so Mm. we switch it up so that we're not getting completely reliant on something. So um, I just realized I have GABA. I have about 
14 supplements. I don't know what any of them are anymore. And I actually, I wish somebody would come up with one pill because it, I should show you the bottles. One says three times a day, no food. The other one is once a day with a meal. The other one is two times a day while standing on your head. And my alarm's constantly going off. Bing, you got to take a supplement, take a supplement, take a, like, I don't have time to work because I'm taking supplements. And I don't even think, I, I just ditched the ball. I'm on vitamin D, uh, magnesium, and um, like a multivitamin. But it's, I bet you any woman's medicine cabinet looks like mine. Like so many yeah, supplements. Totally. totally. For, and half know? of them I take sometimes and the other half I don't. But I think that's a really, really important point, Carrie, is that although we're using these things to help support us through this transition, um, it's also important to treat the root of the problem. So we're not relying on products constantly to help us fall asleep or help us do whatever else we want to do in life is like trying to find the root of the problem and, and whether it be like exercise or proper food habits or all of those other things that we keep telling ourselves we need to do. Um, or even something medically treating, treating a symptom medically if it needs to be. Um, but we can't just constantly rely on something like every single day for certain parts, right? Like, I guess it's okay to take magnesium every day if you're deficient in some way, but maybe not the best to be, um, relying so much on like a melatonin or something every night if you don't need it. Exactly. And, and say, same regard for vitamin D. So I'm not a big vitamin pusher myself, but here in Canada, all Canadians are low in D. And so yeah. we're just never going to get enough D from the sun in our diet. We could mm-hmm. try, um, but we probably need to supplement. Um, and to sort of swing back on um, Jackie's comment about apps, and I had talked about sleep being a psychological issue as well. Um, so we often talk about needing to have sort of a sleep coach. Um, so we talk about CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy in particular for insomnia. And so that's where you would see a psychologist who would help you to sort of retrain your brain and your behaviors about sleep. And those things, if we can do them properly and continue to practice them are non-drug sort of better habit forming things that we know can be more effective than all of these different supplements. The prescription sleeping pills all say you should only use them for seven days. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And most people are on them every day, all year round. Yeah. But the idea was, let's get back into a good night's sleep pattern for seven Mm -hmm. nights. And then we should really be coming off of this medication and really trying to figure out how to do it without the medication. Is that because seven days creates a habit? Is that the sort of thinking? Um, Probably. I know that we really are worried that even after, if we use it for four weeks, we're probably very addicted. Um, We start to lose the benefit of the medication. So all those prescription sleeping pills that people are taking are probably not doing much because they really become tolerant to it, meaning it just doesn't make them sleepy anymore. I wonder if it becomes then sort of um, a placebo at that point. 
or like yeah. psycho, what's the word? Like you just assume that you're sleeping because you're so used to it, but you're, maybe you're just not getting right. the benefits. And then what, what happens is they'll stop taking it and they'll have a terrible night's sleep because they will, because they were addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And so then they say, oh, well, it was making a difference. So I need to get back on it. So right. when we work on de-prescribing, that means trying to come off of these, it takes a long time. We have to go very, very slowly. Um, there is a new kind of um, sleep coach that's supposed to be a little easier than the CBTI. They call it BBTI. So it's called Brief Behavior Therapy for Insomnia. And so instead of taking months and months to retrain the brain, they do it in about four weeks. So it's like four sessions in four weeks. So there what they do is a lot of sleep deprivation. So they'll make you sleep for very short periods of time. So, you know, most women think, oh, I'm going to get to bed at 10. I'm going to sleep till six or seven. They might say, nope, you're not allowed to go to bed till midnight and you have to get up at six. Ew. Yeah. (laughs) Forever. So the idea is to get you very tired and to really start to learn that all I do in that bed is sleep. And so then once you've gotten that sort of worked out, they work on extending it so you can get back into more of an eight hour sleep. So that's something people can look into BBTI. I love that idea. Honestly, well, I don't love, I imagine if I was experiencing, I wouldn't love it, but I do it to myself. Like when I get back into like a workout routine, I, the worst part is getting up in the morning and I can only fit it in in the morning. So I have to work out at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. So I haven't through the (laughs) pandemic, maybe once or twice. And it's like, I know in my head, I just have to do it once. I just have to get up that one morning and work out because I know the exact next, that night I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to be so tired. And the next morning, my body is just going to automatically wake up. Like I know this because I've done it a thousand times yet. I still haven't like mentally prepared myself for it right now, (laughs) but it does make sense. Yeah, you talked about, you know, in the pandemic, just, you know, staying inside, sitting in front of a screen. We have to get physically tired to be able to go to sleep too. And so we see that a lot with older people who really also sit inside, watch the news. Yeah, and they're just not tired enough to get to sleep. And then they nap during the day. So to Ramona's point, um, I mean, this is probably a no-brainer, but exercise, you know, even just getting 20 minutes a day, or I, I don't know what the recommended would be, but exercise and, you know, getting our, our what are the, what's the word with exercise? Are you thinking endorphins? Endorphins, or? thank yeah. you. Like our happiness. <laughs> getting, but, but just getting that in every day, right, can really help with your sleep as well. And, and like to Ramona's point, most of us, especially right now, we are not because we're, we're at home. We're, we're all working from home. We're watching our kids, our dogs, our families, and we're all like wherever we can be in the house just to get some privacy to work. Very stationary lifestyle right now. Right. And, and I really think we need to get outside to get that exercise too. You know, we need to be breathing in that fresh air and soaking in all the sunshine and yeah. all the 
birds and noises and things that we hear outside. Um, but the timing of exercise is important. If we have exercise too close to bedtime, that's too stimulatory. So it's better to exercise during the day. Um, and I wanted to bring up alcohol because that came up at the very beginning as well. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go there. (laughs) Jackie's going to (laughs) run. I have to put myself on mute right now. (laughs) What we just know is that alcohol makes you drowsy. So many people love it as something to help them get to sleep. And so what happens is that, yes, alcohol can make you feel drowsy and fall asleep, but it really makes that deep sleep very, very short. So we get to sleep okay, but then we have a very disrupted sleep. We may not even wake up, but more to how Ramona was talking about feeling like I stayed in bed all night, but I woke up feeling really, really tired. So alcohol is okay. They just say that we really shouldn't be having it three hours before bed, which is... Oh, wow. Well, Well, you also, like, it turns into an accelerant, doesn't it? Sure, yeah. Alcohol is really a stimulant or excitatory, even though we think of it as something that makes us feel more mellow and chilled and relaxed. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really doesn't help us to sleep well. And then caffeine, too. So we used to say that we probably would metabolize caffeine within six hours, but some people it's more like 12. And so it's all about figuring out, okay, when's the last caffeine I can have in the day? I know for me, no caffeine after three o'clock or I'm in trouble too. Oh, okay. I am 11 in the morning. I can't go past 11 or I I'm very sensitive to caffeine. Yeah. See, I usually, I can have a coffee late, but it's interesting. I find now that I'm older, my tolerance is less. Like I've noticed if I have a coffee, like sometimes, you know, on a weekend, I might even have a coffee after dinner, like, cause I'm staying up anyway or whatever, but I've noticed I'm more sensitive to caffeine now that I'm older. Um, what about like some people who are experiencing the hot flashes and the night sweats that are keeping them awake? Certainly. So that's a really interesting story, too, because we know that if you have a hot flash or a night sweat, which is that they're the same thing, just different names. Um, So when we wake up and we've sweat through our pajamas, then we are totally disturbed. You know, we have to Mm -hmm. change. We might need to change the bed sheets. Um, So those can be very, very disruptive to sleep. But what's interesting is they did some studies to look at, you know, what really happens? Does a hot flash wake us up? Or do we wake, which causes a hot flash? And they Mm. did sleep studies where they connected women to all these temperature gauges all over their body, and they watched to see what happened to them all night long. And it's actually both. So sometimes it's that the estrogen level dropped, causing a hot flash, and so a sweat happens, and then we wake up. But there's also the instance where A stress because we were disturbed in our sleep caused the hot flash. So they saw that the women were actually coming out of a deep sleep. They were stirred. They didn't actually cognitively wake up, so they didn't know that they were waking first. But that stimulated the hot flash, which then woke them up. So we sort of say, is it the chicken or the egg? And it it really is both. Do we actually know what a hot flash is? Do we know what causes it? 
Yes. So in our brain, we have a thermometer, just like we do in our house to tell the furnace when to turn on and turn off. And so it's constantly measuring our temperature. And so what do we do when we're too cold? We shiver. (laughs) Inside our bodies, our bodies shiver to try and warm us up. And if we're too hot, we sweat to try and cool our body down. So what happens is that in the temperature measurement in our brain, if you can imagine um, the temperature window that's normal becomes really small in postmenopause. So a temperature that was normal for us before will now feel like it's too hot or potentially too cold. And so then when the body notices this tiny temperature change, it says, oh, I better figure out how to cool the body down. So it opens up our blood vessels. So we get red and we get hot and sweaty. And then we get cold because we got so sweaty. So it is a temperature dysregulation. So our body's not able to regulate our temperature properly. And that all happens with the drop in estrogen. Okay, so how can we level that out and cool down those hot flashes? Certainly. So we can, easiest way to level that out would be to give back estrogen. So if estrogen Mm -hmm. drop is the reason, then giving back estrogen through menopause hormone therapy is one of the ways to do that. We can also trick the body into thinking that estrogen is present. So that's when we would use a supplement um, that makes us think estrogen is there. So we isoflavoins or soy or something called estrovera. They make us think estrogen is there, but it isn't. Um, we can also use supplements like black cohosh. It's not estrogen at all, but it helps to open back up that temperature window. So the temperature range that shrunk now gets bigger. So we get m- more comfortable with all the temperature ranges. Okay. Well, I didn't, I wasn't sure if there was actually an answer to that question or if, if there was just speculation about why it happens. And I certainly didn't know if there was a cure to that. Black cohosh, I've had a few friends try it and they haven't reported significant results with it, but it could just be a personal thing, right? It could be like everybody responds differently to different supplements and drugs, etc. Certainly. And, you know, I often think of, um, so in my mind, supplements are drugs. Anything that we take that changes Mm -hmm. our body in any way is a drug. Mm -hmm. But supplements tend to be gentler drugs. So Mm -hmm. black cohosh is a very gentle drug. And so it works for some women, but many women, it's just not enough because it's, it's too gentle. It's not enough to help monitor or adjust those temperature fluctuations. So something like estrovera might be a better option. Is that a little bit stronger or? I would say that that's another one that would be a little step up. So that is one that goes to the estrogen receptor and it tells the receptor estrogen's here, but it's not estrogen. It's Siberian rhubarb. It's just that it looks like estrogen. And so that's also what happens with soy or isoflavoins. Those can be in products like, um, or red clover. So there's a number of herbal supplements that would have these estrogen lookalikes that make Mm -hmm. us think estrogen is present. Amazing. We've talked a lot about um, like these natural supplements 
And assuming when you are meeting with somebody and they're talking about all the issues they have and, and I'm assuming you determine, I guess the question I have is how do you determine the best course of action for a patient? Like I'm assuming you start off like anything else, like slow, the most, the passive least resistance, whether it's just a little bit of magnesium or melatonin leading up the whole chain of things that we've talked about today what if none of that's working? Like, is there a prescription options for people? Um, Are you talking about sleep? Yeah, just sleep. Yep, sleep. So there certainly are prescription options for sleep. And then we also have the whole gamut there where we can start gentle and and go stronger. Um, And then what we worry about is that addictive risk and how long someone's going to be on it. So I like to talk to women about, you know, that we're really just going to use this for a short course to try and get our sleep habits back on track and that we really don't want to get into a habit of doing this every day. We actually um, have a new player on the market, brand new. I don't have a whole lot of experience, but just to explain all the old sleeping pills, whether they were the Ativans, the Trazodones, the Mirtazapines, all these different medications people may have been on, they all make you sleepy. So they're they're sort of making you dopey so you fall asleep. This new class instead is taking away your wakefulness. So we can be drowsy and we can be wakeful and we have switches for that. And Mm. our wakefulness switch is often on too much. And so this new class of prescription medication turns our wakefulness off. And so what's hopefully better with this one is that it does increase our deep sleep and increase our REM sleep. So we do want REM sleep. REM sleep is where we learn to consolidate our memories so that we're better at um, remembering where we stored things in our brain the day before. Um, And so we're hopeful um, that this is going to be a better class because the older class, when it makes you feel drowsy, we're worried about the next day. Are you still drowsy? Are you driving a car? And are you not as accurate as you could be? But we're also really worried about dementia. So we've learned that the older sleeping pills are unfortunately when people are on them for a long time leading to dementia. Oh, wow. Wow. I hope everybody's listening to this one. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we think about those who are now 75, 85, back in the 60s, when they were sort of young moms, everyone was put on benzodiazepines. They just, they needed uppers and downers to get them through the day to get the things done and get to sleep. And so they've been taking these sleeping pills for 40, 50 years. um, And it's very hard to get them off. And then we wonder with all the dementia, was it really caused from the sleeping pill? So we do want to prevent any of that now. So that's why we try not to prescribe those sleeping pills as much. So this new class of drug, is this a prescription or over-the-counter? It is a prescription. Okay. Um, we only have one on the market in Canada right now. The brand name is called Vigo. I think I'm pronouncing that right. So it's like D-A-Y-V-I-G-O. Um, and so it's still new. Um, you know, we're hopeful that it's 
going to be a safer, better option. It's still a prescription drug, mm-hmm. um, but it's just another option out there for people. Well, that's great to hear because I do happen to know a lot of friends who do use like Ativan during times of high stress, but you know, they still use it as the sleep aid. Um, and I, like Ramona and I have talked a lot about our concerns about everything that happens to us in menopause leading to Alzheimer's. So just that just adds another one to the list. So that's really great to know. And that's definitely something we want to share. Um, back to the supplements. I do have a question. Sure. Um, is there, I'm not sure I can articulate this properly, but um, you know, I know that when we talk about all of the vitamins out there, our bodies can't really absorb all of them effectively. Is that the same with supplements? Like, is there a better format, a more um, optimal format for us to take that our bodies will absorb like gel tablet versus capsule versus liquid or, or does it depend on the brand or does it depend on us as individuals? I think you've said all the answers there. So certainly I think it does depend on an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, vitamin D, for example. Tablets, dirt cheap, um, probably easy to absorb. We need fat to help us absorb vitamin D. So when we take vitamin D, it should be with a meal that has some fat in it, whether it's avocado or oil or cheese or something that's got um, a fat with it. Um, but you can get vitamin D that comes with a fat. So it could be a liquid vitamin D that's in an oil that's either in a a tablespoon that you're swallowing or the ones that I think are the most absorbed are the D drops, which one drop has a thousand units and you just absorb it sublingually, meaning under the tongue. Yeah. Um, So there's an example where the tablets might work just fine for someone, but They may not for someone else. And then there's options to go to something better. So how do we know what to do? Well, in vitamin D, you can get your vitamin D blood level measured and see what, where are you at? Um, But with some of the other supplements, we don't know. Um, You know, uh, calcium, very hard to absorb as well. You need a lot of acid when you're absorbing calcium. It's much better from food than from a supplement. Um... But when you're talking about black cohosh or estrovera, some of these things only come in one way. So that's the only, right. the only option. Um, usually, if it's a good company, they've done some research on how easily is this absorbed? Is, is it going to be beneficial to the patient? Um, but for some women, if you've tried it and it's not working, maybe that's where you try a different version. So black cohosh... For example, um, the original was called Remy Femin. That was the manufactured brand name, and it was a German product. Um, And that's the only product that they ever did a study on for black cohosh. But then once those answers come out, everybody and their nephew starts a supplement company and wants to sell black cohosh because we have so many women who are suffering from hot flashes. But most of those products haven't been studied. So Mm. often when someone tells me black cohosh didn't work for them, I would ask them if they had tried the Remy Fremen brand name. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, unfortunately, I've just learned in Canada, we can't get Remy Fremen anymore. We used to be able to. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when the market gets flooded with 
you know, 12 mm-hmm. different manufacturers, then one company that's maybe the most expensive just isn't able to sell enough product. And so they pull out. Right. Um, I don't know the answer, but that's my hunch. Or is it a COVID issue? I don't know. Wow, that's interesting. I think what you've highlighted for us um, tonight is how important getting the right information is and going to see someone like a certified menopause practitioner, going to your pharmacist who you may know or may not know, but maybe we all need to strike up a relationship with our pharmacist these days. Because I think there's a misconception too around pharmacists and and how much knowledge you guys have around every product that's in there. Like when you're talking about all these different supplements and the ways that we should take them and whatever, I like... I didn't know half of this stuff and it's really important for us to know, but having, being able to see a a menopause practitioner to understand what your options are, because we talked a lot about, you know, over the counter supplements that are easily accessible for everyone uh, versus having to take, you know, a prescription um, sleeping pill or something like that is, is really helpful to know. So thank you so much, Carrie, for for joining us tonight and educating our audience. And I hope uh, they'll give you a call and find out more. (laughs) 